Well, this morning we're continuing our look at David's life and some of the things that the Lord did in David's life and some of the things that we can learn from that. And there's a question that we're going to be kind of thinking about and wrestling with in the back of our minds this morning as we look at 2 Samuel 11. And the question is this, how sensitive is your conscience? How sensitive is your conscience? So I just want you to be thinking about that for a little bit here. And I'm going to start off by reading just the first five verses of 2 Samuel 11. And then we're going to come back multiple times into the chapter to to read some of the other sections. But for starters, let's read the first five verses together. It says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together and even just spend some time, as we've been doing over the past few weeks, looking at various episodes and various moments from David's life and the things that, that you did throughout the course of his life as you raised him up, as you drew him unto yourself, as you enabled him to serve people for your glory. And Lord, as we're looking at a portion of Scripture like this, it's, it's kind of interesting to look at this moment because I think many people would agree that this is the lowest or at least one of the lowest moments in David's life. And his life has so many high moments and so many beautiful things, but, but this is a real dark stretch for him. And Lord, even in the midst of this, it's, it's instructive for us to be able to look at these things and to learn something new. And so Lord, as we wrestle with the idea of the sensitivity of our own consciences, as we look at some of the things that I would imagine many of us find rather disappointing to have to read about David, We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what we're reading, that we would grow from it, and that ultimately, as we're challenged from your word, that we would walk in our relationship with you steadfastly, faithfully, and joyfully, because we know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the other day, I received a message from a friend that I haven't seen or spoken to in several years. And it was kind of one of those messages where he just caught up with me and just filled me in on some of the things taking place in his life and some of the things even taking place in his business since we last spoke. And one of the things that he was, among the things he was talking about, one of the things he mentioned was that the past few years have been extremely challenging for him, challenging for his family, challenging for his business. He's had to make a lot of changes. And I think he feels at this point now, he's finally starting to get caught up. But then at the end of that message that he sent me, He brought up the fact that he believed he owed me money from something that I shared with him a while back, and he wanted to settle that debt. And I thought, he owes me money? And I I, I said, I I was thinking to myself, I was like, what's that all about? And, And to be honest with you, that was the furthest thing from my mind. And as I thought about it, 
I wasn't actually under the impression that he owed me any money. Now, I guess if people send you a message and say they owe you money, you should just always agree, right? Be like, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you do owe me money. I actually don't think he owed me any money. But in his mind, he did. But I thought it was an interesting uh, email that I got from him because I appreciated his willingness to bring that up. Because that was something that was on his mind. My guess is that it's been weighing on his mind for a couple years. Because I haven't talked to him in a long time. And that got me thinking that if that was on his mind since that time, if he thought that he owed me money, that means that probably every time he either heard my name mentioned or maybe saw something that I posted online, there was probably a little voice in the back of his mind, a little voice in his head saying, you know, you owe John money. Probably pay that. You know, and I'm, I'm just thinking, like, how long did that go on in his head? And I guess he finally got sick of rehashing that in his mind, and he decided to, to say something about that. And we probably had similar experiences in our lives where for a long period of time we find ourselves thinking about something and, and either we react to it or we try to squelch it. And I think there's, all there's times in all of our lives where we've probably attempted to squelch our conscience. I will confess to you that there are times in my life that I've attempted to squelch my conscience. And I think the process of doing so, I think it actually begins in our childhood, usually when we're trying to get away with things that our parents have cautioned us against. We try and squelch our conscience. And then sometimes it continues often. It continues into our adulthood when we resist obeying a law or we re resist uh, obeying a workplace rule or some sort of ethic in that regard or a personal pledge that we've, we've made and then we kind of resist keeping that or even just a direct command of God. There are a variety of ways that I think at times we squelch our consciences. And here's the thing. Some people spend the majority of their lives doing that. They spend the majority of their lives squelching their conscience, which means their entire demeanor is fake. You spend the majority of your life squelching your conscience, you're basically living a fake life and giving off a fake presentation of yourself. The person they present themselves to be isn't anything like what they really are. And you can choose to live that way if you want to, but there's a price you pay when you choose to live in duplicity. It will cost you your self-respect. Even if other people don't know what's going on in your heart, it will cost you your self-respect. Sometimes it will also cost you your ability to sleep at night. And then eventually it may also cost you your reputation. There are no secrets with God. Everything we think we're concealing will be completely revealed on the day of His choosing, and not a single person on the face of this planet is exempt. And it's interesting, when you look at a portion of Scripture like what we're reading together today, because the story of David and Bathsheba, it's certainly not a highlight in David's life, right? It's, but it's recorded in Scripture, it's widely known, and it includes many details that I, I'm certain David thought would never be known publicly, at least initially. He didn't think these things were going to be talked about someday from a pulpit in Pennsylvania. He didn't think we'd know this stuff for a while. I mean, eventually it all came to light. But at first, in the midst of it all taking place, he didn't think anyone was going to know about it. He violated his conscience. You see, David is someone who had a habit of listening to the voice of God. Here you have him disregarding God's commandments, and then he attempts to hide his duplicity, but the Lord brought everything to light in due time. Now, even before examining the details that we're going to go into about David's indiscretion with Bathsheba, I think it's helpful to acknowledge a pattern that we see throughout Scripture that I think is being, it's actually a favor that's being done for us when we read a portion of Scripture like this. 
Because this is a portion of Scripture speaking about David. David is somebody that many people throughout the centuries have been tempted to idolize. And it would be very easy for you and for me to look at David's life and, and look at him and say, boy, that's the kind of guy I want to be. There's a lot of high moments in his life. And a lot of moments that you could look at and say, boy, I mean, how amazing that the Lord did that work through David. And there are people that throughout time have essentially idolized David, even during his own time. I think there were some people that possibly did that. But I think it's for our benefit that low moments of people like this are also recorded along with their achievements and their acts of faith, because we're shown these things so we don't mistakenly turn these men and women into objects of worship. I think these things are very purposely put into Scripture to prevent us from worshiping people like this. Their lives serve as great examples to us, but they were far from perfect. And so this is shown to us related to David. And here's the other thing. There's only one sinless man who's ever walked the face of this earth, and his name was Jesus. Never forget that. Even when you're attempting to, or even tempted to, admire or idolize or look up to the lives of people that you may admire. Now, let's look at David's life here for a second and think about the context that he's living and serving in at this moment. David, at this point, has now been made king of Israel. And I get the impression that with many people who he was very popular, there were songs about him. People admired him. People thought he was great. They, they just thought, you know, if, if, if my, when they looked at their own children, they thought, I want my kids to grow up to be just like David. And the longer David was in power in Israel, things started to change inside of him, at least in regard to some of the things that I think were areas of, his, uh, of temptation for him. Because when you think about as he's serving as king, that means that he, he got used to some of the, the privileges and some of the perks and things like that that come with high governmental position. He lived in opulence, so that seems like it would be nice. Do you ever think about stuff like that? Do you ever think about what it would be like to live like a king? Do you ever realize, by the way, that in the generation in which we live in, that we live better than kings lived even just a few hundred years ago? I always come back to this one, but they did not have indoor plumbing. <laughs> just that one upgrade, just that one upgrade makes this a very lovely time in history to be alive, right? Or at least to live in a building. That's right. I hear that agreement. Um, but David, he became used to the privileges and the perks, the opulence. He, uh, he ate well. You know, he didn't have to worry about his food. He ate well. He was highly respected. Many people in his kingdom, they revered him. And while serving in that context, it's very obvious to me that David became a little too accustomed to getting whatever he wanted. And that started to spoil him a little. Could you imagine a life where essentially you could get anything you wanted? Would you want a life like that? Sometimes we, we think we would want that, right? We think, yeah, if I could just get anything I wanted, whenever I wanted, and I had respect, and I had power, and I, had, I lived in opulence, and I could just get anything I want, whenever I want. Do you think you'd want that even now? Like, do you think you'd want that? I think if we're honest, there's probably moments where we've thought, uh, yeah, totally. Like, who wouldn't want that? Do you know the name? Uh, by the way, do you think it would change you? If you were given, if you're just allowed to have anything you want, whenever you want, do you think it would change you? Or do you think you are so rock solid that you would be the exception, right? Do you think that you'd be like, yeah, not me. It wouldn't change me. It's like, really, if you could get anything you want, you don't think it would change you? Do you ever hear the name Jack Whitaker? 
I don't know if you ever heard of him. He made a lot of news 20 years ago. In 2002, he bought a lottery ticket. By, by the way, dumb idea, all right? Don't do that. A lottery, this is my honest opinion on it. And I know you want, I'm teaching the financial class tonight here at the church, so you want my opinion on the lottery? It's a tax on the poor. It's a tax on the poor and the gullible. So if you want to be poor and gullible, play the lottery. Have fun. If you don't want to be poor and gullible, don't play it. But he played it. And now I'm going to do a bad example of like telling you like not to play it and then tell you what happened. He won $314 million, right? And you're like, Pastor, there's a hole in your story. Well, he pledged to use it when he won that. Um, $314 million, by the way. It was back in 2002. $314 million. And he thought, you know what? And by the way, he was already loaded. He already had a net worth of like $12 million, they say, when he won it. So you're like, what? Like, why even play in the lottery at that point, right? But he, he said, you know what? I, I already live well. I'm, I'm good. Um, and uh, he pledged to use his winnings, at least a portion of them, a large portion. He said, I'm going to feed the poor. He was in West Virginia living in an area. There were a lot of, a lot of poverty. And so he, he said, yeah, I'm going to use it to feed the poor. And he also said, this, he directly said this, there's a lot of you know, churches and pastors that have helped me along the way, and so I want to help these churches, I want to help these pastors out, I want to um, you know, like do a lot of good for local churches. And so he said, I want to start and support local churches, and I also want to bless my family. And at first, he became like a folk hero. People were like, you know what, how wonderful that this guy won all this money. And he actually got off to a good start. He started a charity to start feeding people, although that got overwhelmed because they got so many requests that they couldn't really accommodate all of the, all of the requests that, that, um, that he received. And he was helping churches, helping his family, doing things like that. But then the temptations that come with having more money than you know what to do with started to get the best of him. And within a few years... He developed addictions to gambling, to alcohol, and strip clubs. Those seem to be his three primary vices from everything I understand about him. And then his wife got so sick of all of this, she divorced him. And then his granddaughter died mysteriously, possibly from a drug overdose, although they weren't 100% sure, although they did find a lot of drugs in her body. And then his house burned down to the ground, but because he was loaded, he didn't bother insuring it. And so he didn't get any money back from his opulent house burning down to the ground. And then he eventually died, a devastated man with a damaged reputation. So you look at that and you would think, all right, he was already a multimillionaire. You know, this shouldn't affect him, right? And yet it did. It was something that affected him. And then you come back to this portion of scripture here about David. And David, you know, he grew up a shepherd, one of multiple brothers, living a very simple life. And now all of a sudden, he grows used to getting whatever he wants. And the scripture here tells us that one day while his army was off at war with the Ammonites, something new caught his eye. It tells us he was walking around on the, the roof of his residence. And I imagine he would do that from time to time, probably looking out and just kind of thinking about some of the needs of his people and just maybe even just trying to get away from a lot of requests that would come his direction. But he's walking around on the roof of his residence and David's eyes, as he scans the horizon, catches something taking place at another home. His eyes caught the sight of a beautiful woman bathing. And his lustful heart kicked into overdrive, and he had her brought to the palace. And I think he had her brought to the palace in, in such a way that it didn't look like his motives were, were improper, but you could see what took place. 
And uh, even though he was told that this woman, Bathsheba, was the wife of Uriah, and by the way, if you're not familiar with Uriah, Uriah was a soldier who was fiercely loyal to David. This guy loved David. And he's listed among David's mightiest warriors. One of the guys most committed to him. In 2 Samuel 23, it talks about Uriah that way. And yet you still have David taking advantage of Uriah's wife. Scripture says that he slept with her, and a child was conceived in this act. And then you have David, who's used to all the respect that he enjoys in this kingdom and all the opulence that he lives in and all of these things. He goes into protection mode where he decides to attempt to protect his own reputation. And so he comes up with some ideas that think will help him disguise the fact that this child that Bathsheba is now carrying is his. Now, in our era, many people try to utilize abortion to hide their pregnancies. I have a friend who recently decided that she would just openly share the fact that during her younger years, she had two abortions in the attempt to escape the consequences of the lifestyle that she was living. And I'm grateful to say that now she uses her testimony to encourage young women to find hope in Jesus instead of trying to find hope in this world's solutions. But that's, in our day, a lot of times how people attempt to cover their tracks. But then you look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 6, and the verses following, and it reveals to us David's plan. And this is what it tells us David came up with. This was his idea. It says, so David sent word to Joab. This is after he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. He says, hey, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So the scripture tells us that Uriah chose to do in that context. So in vain here, you have David attempting to cover his tracks. You have David requesting that Uriah be brought back from the battle. So he's out at war, serving the kingdom, serving serving his people. He's out at war. David says, you know, bring him back. And his plan was basically to encourage Uriah. Look, Uriah, just go home, sleep with your wife, give off the appearance that this baby is yours. That's what he thinks is going to happen. Uriah doesn't have any idea what's really going on here. But what we see about Uriah, and this is a pattern that you could kind of tell is, is, is basically the way he lived his life. He was a man of integrity. And he refused to enjoy the comforts of home while the rest of the, of the army in which he served was out at battle. And so here you have him, it says, instead of going to his house and instead of enjoying this time with his wife, he doesn't go down to his house. It says he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants. That's what he chose to do. So David looks at this and he's thinking, my plan is not working. So then his, he gets deceit, like, deceitful and very devious and he kicks some things into over, overdrive here. And even though, by the way, when you look back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, it, the scripture refers to David as a man after God's own heart, and that was true. David was a man after God's own heart, but, you know, and, and that's a wonderful thing about him, right? I mean, when you read the Psalms and you read the things that, that the Lord inspired him to write there, and you see many wonderful instances from his life, it makes it doubly hard 
to think about some of the things that he was willing to do in this context related to Uriah. Because he truly was a man after God's own heart, but he had this moment, he had this season, where it was almost like, I don't know, the person that you would think he would be, that's not who he was demonstrating. And by the way, I, I kind of bring that up because do you ever go through a season where you feel like, man, I'm just, I'm like, I'm not myself. Do you ever go through something like that? Do you ever look at a season where you see like a, like a real valley that you go through where you think, all right, this is not representative of who God has called me to be. And when you look at this moment in David's life, that's definitely one of those moments. He certainly wasn't acting with godliness during this brief season of his life. So David's backup plan was to orchestrate Uriah's death in battle and then take Bathsheba as his own wife after Uriah was dead. When you look at verses 14 to 17, it tells us in the morning, now this is, in my opinion, one of the darkest parts of this story, but it says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So just think about this. Like when I think about the integrity of Uriah, Uriah is serving David, serving the kingdom, serving in the war, and David writes this letter, and he gives it to Uriah, and he says, Uriah, bring this to Joab. So Uriah is carrying this letter in his own hand and has the kind of integrity to not attempt to open it or even read it. You know, this is from the king. This is for Joab. I want to be a good soldier. I'm going to carry it. And he brings it to Joab. And the scripture says, it says, in the letter he wrote, Send, or set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. That's a dark moment, is it? Isn't it? Like, you look at this, and you're like, that's a very dark moment. David is someone, I have to admit, I have a lot of respect for, but this episode in his life is very troubling on multiple levels. So not only do you have David squelching his conscience, and not only do you have David sleeping with another man's wife, but he also has that same man deliver the letter with his own hand that would result in his, in his death. I think that's dark. I think that's very painful to even contemplate. But put, put, your, put yourself in Uriah's shoes for just a moment. He was a strong man. He was a valiant man of integrity who loved his wife, loved his nation, and loved his king. Uriah was someone who was fiercely loyal to protecting David's life. And if anything, David should have given Uriah the world, right? I mean, if you've got somebody like that on your team, it should have been a blessing. But what David does instead is he takes everything that matters away from Uriah. I think that's a very sad thing to see Uriah betrayed by the man he had given his life to serve. And I think this story does a really good job of demonstrating the, the depths of the, of the darkness of the human heart. This is how far our hearts can go. I think, sadly, if we make a habit of, of remaining ignorant of the counsel of God's Word, and if we fail to heed the prodding of the Holy Spirit in our heart, I think this is the same direction our lives will go one, one way or another. I think the exact circumstances might be a little different, but the carnage and the consequences will absolutely be real. But I'm going to tell you a little secret, and it's something worth noting. I think it's particularly worth knowing if your heart is presently weighed down with regret or if you're still in the process of trying to hide something. 
If you're in the process of maybe trying to hide something you're ashamed of. Jesus understands it all. And there's a road back to a clear conscience. And there's a road back to spiritual vitality. Love what Scripture reveals to us in 1 John chapter 3, when you look at verses 19 and 20. There it says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Isn't that an interesting thing to contemplate? God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. There isn't a single mistake you've made in your life that came as a surprise to Jesus. Ever think about that? None of it surprised him. There isn't a single season of rebellion and regret that his grace isn't sufficient to restore and his mercy isn't strong enough to forgive. I think even if your heart is presently condemning you for past mistakes, remember what it says in 1 John 3, God is greater than your heart. He's greater than your self-condemnation. I think the road of faith and repentance leads right back to him. So walk away from what's violating your conscience and run toward him. Don't spend years and years and years trying to squelch your conscience. Just say, you know what? I give up. This isn't good. I don't like what it's doing in my heart. I don't, know, I don't like what it's doing in my mind and in my life. I don't, know, I don't like how this is impacting me spiritually. I don't like the fact that this, is, this feels like it's creating distance between me and my Creator. Let today be the day you just draw the line in the, sand, in the sand and say, you know what, I repent of this. I give it up. I'm done with it. When we're reading about Uriah's demise here in this portion of Scripture, and when we think about the betrayal that he experienced, I can't help but think about Jesus and the end of his own earthly ministry. Uriah was betrayed by someone he loved. He'd been loyal to David, but then didn't receive that loyalty in return. Jesus also experienced betrayal, and it also resulted in his physical death. And yet, when you think about what Jesus endured, he endured even more emotional pain than Uriah because the betrayal Jesus endured was known to him. Uriah didn't know he was being betrayed, and he lost his life unaware of this betrayal. But Jesus was aware that it was happening right when it was taking place. In Luke 22, we're told this, then Satan, it's speaking of Judas here, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. You notice that line? By the way, isn't it interesting to observe the fruit of a seared conscience? David tried to betray Uriah in secret. Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus in the absence of a crowd. In the absence of a crowd. Sin can't stand up to the light. That's why it tries to operate in secret, right? It loves to operate in secret, can't stand up to the light. But again, secrecy is a complete illusion. In the end, there is nothing that will be hidden. Not a single thing. Luke 18, you have Jesus telling, or Luke 8, verse 17, Jesus says this, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Isn't that an interesting statement? There are no secrets. That means everything I've ever thought I was hiding is going to come to light. 
Everything you ever thought you were hiding, it's going to come to light one way or another. It's all going to come to light. There's nothing secret that will, that will remain hidden, according to Jesus. Now, when you look at, at David's life, in this particular instance, I think David is very easy to pick on. And so is Judas. And from a safe distance, I think we throw our stones and we find the faults that we want to find. But these men aren't the only ones guilty of betrayal. If we're honest, our hands are just as filthy. I don't really like to think about it, but every time I've praised Jesus with my lips and then gone my own way in my life, that's a betrayal. Every time he's tugged at the strings of my heart and I've persisted in my own rebellion, that's a betrayal. Every time in my life that that's the pattern that I've chosen to go, it's just another form of betraying Jesus who gave himself for me. Mercy, patience, and time are valuable gifts that, that we as Christians have been blessed to receive. I'm really grateful that when you look at the totality of Scripture and you see the various things that Scripture reveals about the Lord's work and how He operates in our lives, we see these things, mercy, patience, time. They're, they're really valuable gifts that Christians have been blessed to receive directly from the hand of God. It's a gift to know that, that through Jesus we have been made objects of God's perfect mercy. I deserve to be an object of God's wrath, and yet He's made me an object of His mercy. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you too have gone from being an object of God's wrath to being an object of His mercy. I think it's a gift to know that our Lord abounds in patience toward His rebellious children. You know, do you ever think about the heart of God toward His children and how He waits and He waits and he prods us, and he gives us opportunity to repent and come back to him. I still remember a time. I, I don't remember if I ever told my mother that I caught her doing this. Um, and by the way, I didn't catch her doing something bad. It was something good. Um, I, I remember one night. I'm a bad sleeper. I've been a bad sleeper my whole life. I, I feel like I'll get to sleep in eternity or something like that because uh, I'm not using up the time I should be using for sleeping now. And... Um, and even as a, as a young person, I was kind of a bad sleeper, and I went through a really, really rebellious phase right around seventh grade. A lot of people wait till they're a little bit older to go through their season of rebellion. That was, that was the, the peak of rebellious me. And I remember one night I was up and I was awake, and I just stepped out of my bedroom, and I could hear my mother talking, but I was like, who is she talking to? And I just kind of walked out into the living room, and I looked, and I saw her kneeling down in front of our couch in the living room and praying for, I'm assuming she was praying for all of her children out loud, but the part that I heard, she was praying for me. And she was praying that, I remember her using the phrase, Lord, please help him buckle down. That's what she said. That's the only thing I remember about the prayer, just her words and, uh, and her saying, Lord, help, help him to buckle down. Like, just to settle down, like to, to not be in this state of rebellion. And I remember at the time, there was a part of my heart that was warmed by that, and another part of my heart that still felt a little rebellious toward it. And, uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to tiptoe back to my bedroom before she realizes that I'm out here, and that I heard her. And I'll tell you what, you learn a lot about the heart of God when you have children, don't you? If the Lord blesses you with kids, you learn a lot about the patience of God as well. And, um, and I think of this, you know, and I, I look at David's life, and I look at our own lives, and I think about my seasons of rebellion, I think of David's seasons of rebellion, you have your own. Again, mercy, patience, and time are very valuable gifts that the Lord has allowed us to have. 
He shows us some wonderful things. And isn't it wonderful to know that if you're in the hearing of His Word right now, that you're still being given enough time to realize that desensitizing your conscience to Him, to His will, to His desires for you, that it's really eventually going to make you sick to your stomach and ruin your quality of life, and that He invites you to return. Like a parent whose heart longs for their child. And I, I look at that, and, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people that, that spe- again, spend their lives trying to stuff their conscience down. And they go year after year after year while God patiently waits for them, opens his arm to them, invites them to just return to him or to come to him for the first time. And I, I look at that and I think, you know what? I mean, that's, that's the direction that all of us have gone to one degree or another, and that could have been the pattern or the story for all of our lives, but I'm so grateful that the Lord gives us the alternative. What's the alternative? The alternative is to rely on the power of Christ to, res- to resist the allure of this world's attempts to take the place of Jesus in our lives. This world tells you it's going to make you happy. This world tells you it's going to soothe your pain, but it doesn't have the capacity to do that. The world's promises are empty because this world can't offer eternal solutions. That's the difference between the solutions the Lord offers you and me and the solutions that this world offers. This world doesn't offer you anything eternal, and yet Christ does. Christ offers eternal solutions for our grief, for our loneliness, for our pain. Those are things that only ultimately can be solved through Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up this morning, let me just ask the primary question I'm asking today again. How sensitive is your conscience? I want to encourage us to stay sensitive to the Lord's leading. As the Lord seeks to lead you, as He prods you, as He directs you, as He speaks into your life, stay sensitive to His leading. He remains forever faithful. He will expose the deceitful schemes of the evil one that stand against you. And if you seek His power and you come to him with humility, do you doubt that he'll grant you that power and that help? If we come to the Lord with a contrite heart, if we come to the Lord in humility and say, Lord, you know what? I've spent a lot of time going my own direction. I've spent a lot of time running around and rebelling against you and taking my life in a direction that really doesn't honor you, nor does it serve the purposes for which you've created me. And I want that to change today. I want a new life. I want a new way of thinking. I want a new perspective. I don't want to go through life trying to squelch my conscience any longer. Do you think the Lord will honor that prayer? Do you think he'll answer it? Of course he will. Why would he not? That's the very reason he came on fle- came, or took on flesh and came to this earth on your behalf and my behalf, to rescue and redeem those who are lost. For those of us who are believers, don't keep living like you're lost. It will not improve your quality of life. It will damage your quality of life. It will ruin your quality of life. And if you don't know Christ as of yet, let me encourage you to respond to his invitation to follow him. Trust in him. Follow him. He will cleanse your conscience. He will make you brand new. He will draw you close to himself, and he will give you power that is sufficient for every temptation and every difficulty and every low moment of life that you may find yourself in.
His power absolutely is sufficient. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Find the person you know that's followed Jesus the longest and ask them to tell you stories about their trials and ask them to tell you how God showed himself faithful to them over and over and over again through the decades. And I believe that your heart will be encouraged. And again, here we look at David's story. And we're in the midst of a a very, very unpleasant season. Now, I have good news about all of this. This isn't where it ends. We're actually going to spend the next two weeks in this same season of of life for David. And we're going to see what happens next and then how he responds. If you want to read ahead, feel free. But I'm grateful for what we're shown in, in Scripture of how God can change a heart even when that heart has gone through a season of hardness. And if your heart's been hard, but today's the day that you're saying, you know what, I'm done with this. Praise God. He'll be with you. And let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that when we go through bumpy seasons, things like we see David very much in the midst of in this portion of Scripture, that you are patient, that you demonstrate undeserved mercy to us, that you give us your guidance, that you give us your help, that you're not leaving us here to rely on our own strength or our own power. Lord, I'm just so grateful for that. I'm grateful for the fact that even as we look at David's life and we see what many would agree is is probably his his absolute lowest moment. Lord, we're, we're so grateful for for what occurs afterward. We're so grateful for the fact that that there's hope beyond the error. There's hope beyond the rebellion. There's hope beyond the mistake. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help each of us, if we've been wrestling with some things, to understand that and to be willing to accept the fact that your strength is real and you desire to draw us close to yourself. Lord, help us, please, to be men and women after your own heart. Help us to be people who know you and love you and aren't spending our lives trying to ignore your voice. Lord, there's so many people in this world that that even professing Christians who say, I just want to know the will of God for my life. And then you look at the pattern of their life and the pattern of their their life is to just squelch your voice as you speak to them by the power of your spirit. So how could we possibly know your will if we won't listen to your voice when you speak to us about day-to-day things? that are more obvious, and then we try and discern things that seem less obvious to us, but we've made this pattern of our lives of ignoring your voice. So Lord, we pray that you would change that for us. We pray that we would realize the error that sometimes we have found ourselves making. We pray that we would walk with you faithfully in the midst of every context that you place us in. Thank you again, Lord, for what you've revealed to us in your word, and thank you for the work that you've accomplished on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ, who took our sin and our rebellion and our condemnation upon himself at the cross, dying in our place after having been betrayed by someone he loved and cared for and was loyal to. And Father, we're grateful for the resurrection of your Son, that on the third day he rose from the grave, defeating Satan, defeating sin, defeating death, and that that victory is shared with us as we trust in him. So, Lord, we pray that our lives would be just lives marked by trust, that we would trust your Son. 
that we would know you through him. And we're grateful again, Lord, for the reminders and encouragement you give to us from your word. We commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.